Hello folks, it is Nick Knack Jack with Season 4, Episode 2, and this is going to be called Regulating Transport. This episode's going to be all about uh, the relationship between government, if you will, and transportation. And it's a very complex relationship that uh, I'm going to explore in as many ways as I possibly can in the short 20-odd minutes that I allow myself to do this show. So, um, stay tuned, and we'll get things rolling. Right, ladies and gentlemen, the um, impetus for this week's episode is my recent decision to uh, take a discovery flight. Now, a discovery flight, for those of you that don't know, is uh, a reduced introductory uh, flight lesson. Uh, I'll be spending fifty bucks to uh, get uh, to get some time in a Cessna one hundred and fifty-two and kind of see what it feels like. It. See, see what it feels like, uh, see if I like it, um, you know, get a, get a sense for what it is, get a sense for what real-world flying is. And the thing that finally made me uh, decide to do this was, I mean, obviously I spend so much time in flight sim, you can probably read a little bit of the uh, engine noise of the 777 I'm flying right now, um, that it just seems ridiculous not to try to uh, experience the actual real-life thing. And it may just be a factor of I can do it once, um, and then I decide, well, I can't do it anymore um, because I don't think I can get a medical license or, you know, whatever the reason might be. You know, it it may be a one-time thing. Um, I'm hoping that's not the case because I really do enjoy flight sim, and I enjoy flight sim, uh, because that all goes all the way back to the to the first real ride I got in a small plane, and it was a kilt built. Uh, unfortunately, I can't remember what 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 type of kilt kit built uh, airplane it was, but it was a kit kit built airplane, um, and it had retractable gear flaps. Uh, seemed like the cruising airspeed was very similar to a Bonanza, around 140 to 160 knots. And it was it was just a lot of fun, and I got to hold the stick for maybe five minutes. And of course, at the time, I didn't know what it was going on or what was involved. Uh, now I do. Now, if somebody hands me the stick for five minutes, I can probably keep it level, um, as long as there's not a lot of wind that requires me to use the rudder anyway. Um, so I mean that that's a big difference, and and I'm kind of approaching this opportunity um, with a great lot. A great deal of hope and a great deal of enthusiasm, hoping that uh, real-world aviation will really stand up to 
um, what I expect it to be from all my time in the simulator. I've been running Microsoft Flight Simulator pretty consistently since um, 1999 or so. That was when I first got the, um, I think it was a Sierra simulator, and it was after shortly after that ride in the small plane. Um, and my first, my first ride in a big plane... Um, was in a probably a seven three seven three hundred or five hundred. Actually, it could have been a four hundred too. I don't, I don't. I'm pretty sure um, Southwest had four hundreds in their fleet. But it was from Sacramento, California to Ontario, California, just one way, nice short flight. Um, and then subsequently, uh, I've ridden in. MD-80s, which I'm not a big fan of. I've also ridden in uh, several 747-400s in between uh, Los Angeles and Melbourne, uh, Victoria, and in between Sydney and Los Angeles, California, and uh, then in between San Francisco and London, and back, of course. Um, So I've been on a 747-400 four times. And, oh, I've probably been on a 757 at least once, a 767 at least once, um, several 737s. I love the 737. It's my favorite plane thus far. Um, And, you know, in that time, I've kind of gotten a sense of what the experience is like. And um, I really do feel like it's something that I would enjoy. And it's a um, mode of transit. Uh, general aviation, that is, that m- the, cu- the public doesn't commonly think of as having them having it available to them. The p- public thinks, well, if I'm going to fly, I'm going to fly with the airlines, and I'm going to go from Sacramento to Ontario, or I'm going to go from San Francisco to New York, and I'm going to have to put up with the airlines, you know, conditions and the um, the TSA's conditions or whatever government. Regular, regular, regulators happen to be in charge of your local aviation infrastructure. And um, to be honest, in a post-9-11 world, um, I absolutely despise the airliner. I generally um, only revert to airliner travel or human mailing tubes, as general aviation fans tend to call them. Um when I need to go on international legs, like the London to um, uh, San Francisco or something like that, and maybe if I'm going all the way across the country, if I'm if I'm pressed for time, then I'll do it. But I generally, you know, if I'm going from say Chico to Seattle, a train makes more sense, or a car makes more sense, or you know, not 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 dragging my ass down to Sacramento, putting up with all the uh, security bullshit, and then. Um, sitting in a sargane, sardine tan can for an hour and a half. You know, it's not my not my idea of fun. And it's not because... It, it doesn't have anything to do with the airplane. It doesn't have anything to do with the physical characteristics of it. Because I actually like flying. The actual process of flying, I love it. Um, put me up in a jump seat. I think I'll, I'll absolutely adore it. Um, but put me... In the back, where you know, where I'm not adjacent to a window seat, you know, where I can't see what's going on, um, and I don't like it. I don't like it because I like being 
feeling like I'm in control and I have a sense of my surroundings and I know what's going on. Um, I'm the same way with pretty much every mode of transportation. And generally speaking, uh, the mode modes of transit most readily available to the common populace, uh, at least here in the United States, are cars and um, bus, I guess, would be next. And then after that is train. Uh, car and bus, either you're... Well, with cars, you're either driving the vehicle, generally speaking, or you're in a passenger seat, and you can see the driver of the vehicle, and therefore you know what's going on, and therefore uh, my sense of paranoia has always been somewhat reduced. Um, and it's the same way with motorcycles, same way with bus drivers. You know, you can see the operator, you know what's going on, and you feel safe um, most of the time. Uh, trains, however, are not this way. And the way I've gotten around this kind of fear and phobia, if you will, with trains is, um, is I generally take a scanner with me on board that, um, has the radio frequencies that the, uh, train crew is using so I can hear the train communication. I, uh, can hear, hear us going over detectors. I know our speed, um... I've operated a train before. I know how to operate a train, so I feel pretty confident that if, for some reason, in an emergency, I need to operate a train, I could successfully uh, get from point A to point B without too much trouble. Um, And I am at that point where I feel like um, if you put me in on the flight deck of pretty much any Boeing aircraft aircraft, complete with a Category 3 auto land system, preferably. Um, I could probably land it manually, but I wouldn't want to try it. I mean, in an emergency situation, if, if we have a Cat 3 approach available and uh, full automatic systems available, uh, I can get the plane down. Um, and I, I, feel, I feel pretty confident in that because I'm familiar enough with the systems. I can familiar, familiar enough with the mode control panel. Um, to where I, I know what I'm doing and, you know, I feel comfortable with that. But I want to be, I want to be beyond just, you know, a a virtual pilot who knows how to operate the MCP and program an FMC and that's it. Because that's generally, that's most of what the, the higher level virtual pilots know. They know how to operate the MCP and they know how to program an FMC or full GPS and, you know, they might have some basic aviating skills, but not very much. You know, generally, uh, if you're hand-flying the aircraft, you, uh, you know, for more than, say, 15 minutes over the course of the entire flight, you're in trouble. And um, I do want to get past the stage. Um, and I, I have uh, progressed quite significantly in uh, virtual aviation. I, am, I mean, these days, I'm flying the 777 and 747 Triple uh, Seven flying the PSS pretty regularly, and that's going pretty well. Um, the damn thing doesn't stop with a darn, which pisses me off. But it's um, the PSS seven five seven does the same thing, so it's something to do with the way they modeled um, the rollout. I think. Um, although I I ought to post something on AvSim and ask people about that because it's it's kind of frustrating. Um, and the PMDG seven four seven, I I can land that. Uh, I'd say about 70 to 80 percent of the time at the moment, and it's it's getting better. Um, and you know, I when I, when I was actually at that phase where I was learning about virtual 
aviation, really dedicating myself to learning a little bit about hand flying. I was flying the uh, Dream Fleet Bonanza A36, and uh, that was where I learned how to track VOR, how to track it, how to uh, do an ILS approach, that sort of stuff. So I have some basic knowledge, and of course I know how to trim and. I know the general concepts of turning and a traffic pattern and all that good stuff. So, you know, I'm very eager to to get into the real world situation and see how well this this simulator knowledge translates. Um, which leads me to think back to uh, the train simulator world and how well the train simulator translates to the actual operation of a train and. You know, the majority of the differences are the differences that you experience in feeling um, and the differences that you experience from having the real control surfaces available to you versus the, you know, hitting, hitting buttons on the screen. I mean, it's very, very different, uh, you know, to hold, to hold a throttle and advance it and, um, you know pull it back and apply the brakes when the force is actually there. Um, now, generally speaking, I, I wasn't too surprised. I didn't, you know, there was nothing really shocking about the operation, so to speak. Um, I felt like I had it in pretty good handle. Uh, my biggest struggle, actually, was maintaining a steady speed um, uh, with the train, and that was that's actually something I have a hard time in the simulator with. So I think that that would probably be something that would come with time, training, and experience, I would assume, um, as far as operating over the road goes. But I, but based on that experience, I feel pretty confident that I'm going to go into this situation, and I'm going to know where the buttons are, I'm going to know where the levers are, and it'll just be a matter of training my body, getting the physical connection going, and understanding how that works. Um, so I'm pretty excited about that. But... Um, being excited by this prospect and thinking about all this transportation stuff got me thinking about uh, the transit model we have in the United States and what we encourage and what we discourage. Uh, if you look at it, look back at it, um, take yourself back, oh, 60 years, um, to say 1950. 1950 was the height of the post-war suburbia um, utopian feel. You know, we won, won the war, we're, things are getting better, we're recovering, we got this Cold War thing that's developing, but it's not quite yet a huge problem. You know, just kind of this, this nice little era. And within that era, there was a big shift towards uh, communal, tr communal transport that had been pretty dominant um, since uh, the start of the 20th century, give or take. Uh, you know, before that, it was kind of, you know, if you if you were traveling across the country, uh, immigrating, that sort of stuff, you get, you get in a covered wagon and maybe you travel in a wagon team. That would be a, a group sort of activity, group dynamic. Um, but for the most part, it was horse and buggy and, um, you know, kind of small groups or not very many people traveling at the same time. Uh, the invention of the train changed that. The invention of the train uh, allowed many people to travel together um, in one consistent line. Um, in other words, you could um, run a train from 
New York to San Francisco, for instance, and know that you can make make money uh, even if people weren't going directly from New York to San Francisco, but were going to the intermittent stops because at any one point in the route you have people getting on and people getting off and you know you're making your stops and it's a continuous run um so that was kind of a the the start as i see it of of communal traveling um uh the sailing ships were also part of this too uh they were probably they predated the train by quite a bit um in that you had small groups uh, traveling on a boat together, uh, we're all going the same direction. We're all, you know, combined into one thing. And uh, these would kind of be categorized, uh, in, mo- in modern terms, you could say that a bus, uh, a light rail, uh, rail, and airline transport are all uh, communal transportation. Uh, these are systems de- designed to... Um, work as a mass transit system to trans transport a massive amount of people from point A to point B. And um, in general, in general, I think that this is mass transportation is the way most people should be getting around on a day-to-day basis. That's, that's my opinion. I believe we should have a system where the private transportation system that we currently have emphasized of cars, at least here in the United States, uh, which is not very efficient, doesn't make much sense, um, I think that should slowly be discouraged um, in favor of more mass tra- transportation uh, options and maybe more varieties and maybe you know looking at the airline system and, and saying, all right, well, maybe we're not going to do this hub thing anymore. Maybe we're going to uh, put more variety into the hubs we set up, or maybe we're just going to do more point-to-point transit, or, you know, shake it up so that not everybody's trying to get to the same airport at the same time. You know, you can catch a plane out of Chico just as easily as you could uh, out of Sacramento, uh, for example. You know, set it up so that if you're at point A, it's fairly easy and fairly affordable for you to get to point B. Uh, however, you may need to get there, and um, you know that's that's what I that's what I would hope to see. That's what I would want. I would want a socialized, if you will, transit system where, um, you know, you you probably you, you pay a fare um, for any transit transit mode that you're using, but that fare amount is decreased by government subsidy. Uh, i.e. taxes, but government subsidies, so that, you know, you're not paying an arm and leg for your train ticket or your your local bus ticket or uh, your airline ticket. You're, just, you're paying a reasonable price, price that is your share of the cost, and ideally the transit organization would not be operating for profit, uh, but more for sustainability, so they can cover their costs and make make, but also make investments in the future. So I mean, you know, ideally they may be making some profit, but the point of the organization wouldn't be profit. That to me would be the idealized form of mass transit, so that you know your local light rail system is making maybe uh, I don't know a hundred thousand dollars a month. Uh, that's just a number pulled out of the hat. So, I mean, 
it, it's it's making a hundred thousand dollars a month in profit over their costs. Now that may not seem like much, but if you make a hundred thousand dollars over your costs every month, eventually that's going to add up. You're going to be able to reinvest, um, and you're going to have it such that you know you're not making so much profit that profit becomes the point, and you go the whole capitalist route, and everything goes to shit. Um, I think it would be a nice kind of compromise if you had that set up. But then you have the question of what do you do with this private transportation? What do you do with this American culture in which we tend to think that we're entitled to our own private transportation? And I don't have an answer fully to that because, um, well, I, I don't enjoy as much the use of private car transportation, um, and I've actually sold my car within the past several months, um, I do enjoy the prospect of private um, airplane operations. The, you know, the idea of not having to use the mass transit system if I want to fly Ch- from Chico to San Francisco, or if I want to fly even from Chico to New York. You know, the idea that, hey, I could fly that, I could fly myself there. Um, if that option made sense, if that option were economical to me. So, you know, as important as I think having a good socialized mass transit system as your base is, I don't think there's any way that we can ever really do away with the private transportation, especially with the culture that we have in the United States. But I would hope that slowly as the years go by, we can kind of change that trend and we can kind of set it so that most people, say 90% of the population to get from point A to point B, uh, use some form of mass, mass transit, whether it be the bus, um, light rail, rail, or airline. Um, but, you know, if, if you have a treat, if you have leisure time, maybe you can go for a drive privately in your car, or maybe you can go for a, a quick flight privately um, in an airplane that you could rent or a car that you could rent or something of that accord. I, 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 I really would like to see some system where you know the majority of transportation is done through a mass transit publicly funded uh, socialized system and maybe the rest of the traffic is just light recreational traffic. You're doing it for fun. That You're doing it for the joy of the transportation itself, not just getting there. Uh, Because I think that could have a very positive effect on the way people operate their vehicles. If it's a treat or if it's a joy to be driving somewhere versus it being a chore, then I think safety safety would be increased. And I think um, it would be a lot more efficient overall. So there you go. Uh, I'm a transit advocate. I'm a big transit fan. And now I've sat down and spelled out to you my big transportation theory and uh, my hope for the future and um, I guess it's just a matter now of figuring out how how can I take my opinion how can I take my perspective on transit and uh, start to see it implemented here in my culture and uh, affect this country that I'm rather frustrated with in a positive way Um, that's kind of that's starting to be the theme here as we uh, get rolling on season four. Can't guarantee that that's going to be the entire theme, but uh, that's the starting place anyway. And I will, of course, let you know how the 
flight goes, and hopefully it'll be a lot of fun. But um, until next next week, uh, you are listening to the knickknackjack.com podcast. The knickknackjack.com podcast is brought to you by the Knickknackjack Podcast Network. Visit knickknackjack.net for more information, and you can always send me email, N-I-C-N-A-C-J-A-K at gmail.com. Let me know what you think of the show, send me comments, send me feedback, all that sort of good stuff. And if you're so inclined, donate! Help me uh, continue to produce this podcast and share my insight and thoughts with the rest of you. And hopefully one day we can make this a conversation type setup, make it so you can talk to me too, just... You know, so it's a two-way communication channel. That would be the ideal thing. But um, with that, I'm going to wrap it up for this week and talk to you guys next week. Thanks for listening. Bye.